And the rest of you can, if you wish, turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Amos. Where is that? Uh, it's, it's a minor prophet. Minor, not unimportant. Yeah, Amos and, An no, not Amos and Andy. <laughs> it's page 1465 in my Bible. So good luck if you have the same Bible you Really? 1344? Well that gives people a general rule. It's somewhere around 1300 to 1400. <laughs> Let's pray before we get started. Lord as we approach your word we're asking for your assistance and blessing and Father we just uh, want to grasp the truths that you have for us through your word today in Christ's name. Amen. Well so I decided after the book of Acts which I loved and hated leaving almost started over again. No. I, I'm <laughs> I decided we need to look at uh, the Old Testament a little bit because we haven't done it for a long time. I mean we preached all the way through Matthew and, um, and then Acts and it's been years, right? <laughs> so I, I, I picked Amos for a couple of reasons. We haven't been in the Old Testament is one reason. Not in church anyway. Friday nights we've been doing Old Testament stuff. But um, what really got me thinking about Amos is our, our Tuesday afternoon through the Bible in a year group. <coughs> because we're just now entering the poetical books uh, doing the through the Bible thing in, in our little group there. And I wanted to study together uh, here in some depth a book that is almost entirely Hebrew poetry. And that's because that we kind of die in the poetry part sometimes um, if we're not familiar with it or how to read it or anything like that. So I thought uh, it's hard. It, Hebrew poetry is, is hard for modern readers. And it's not like English poetry. Um, it's not like what we think of as poetry. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme for one thing and it doesn't have a specific meter either. It, it does interesting things though and it's structured in a very wonderful way but it's totally different than what we think of as poetry. So it's all built on a, a variety of parallel lines. Usually two lines, little couplets. And the couplets often form paragraphs and things like that. But it's always a first line and a second line, almost always. Sometimes there's a third line. But um, it's how those lines relate to each other um, that puts forth an idea. And the reason uh, for Hebrew poetry is to take you, it could just say things, you know, God is like this and these guys are going to get in trouble and all this kind of stuff. But by doing it in a poetic way, it goes beyond just an idea, an abstract sort of idea, judgment, justice, all those kind of things. It's designed to actually present images into your mind. And the hearer or the reader, um, in a sense, is, is meant to experience the content of those lines, those couplets. And that is hard for us because in, in the Hebrew Bible you're creating mental images for people that lived many thousands of years ago. So their world is different from our world. Their geography is different and there's so whatever it's referring to some things we can grasp and other things we go well what's that? You know it, it's just hard. So some parts are easier and other parts are, are a little more, more difficult. But obviously everything they wrote was culturally familiar to them but it's not all culturally familiar to us. So we kind of stumble around and, and aren't sure of what we're studying. You know, So if you don't know the geography or the daily work or experience of an ancient Israelite, a lot of things are just un unfamiliar and that makes these things sort of hard. So I, I just want to go through it so you can kind of get a feel for it when you're doing your own reading in the Old Testament. I, I just as an example I just threw my Bible open to a poetical section randomly and I, I, land, I landed on Isaiah chapter 17 and I'm just going to read this for you and you can just kind of get a sense of that. So verse 4 this is Isaiah 17 4 you don't have to turn to it just listen. Now in that, in that day the glory of Jacob will fade 
and the fatness of his flesh will become lean. It will be even like the reaper gathering the standing grain as his arm harvests the ears, or it will be like one gleaning ears of grain in the valley of Rephaim. Yet gleanings will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives on the topmost bough, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. In that day a man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the asherim and incense stands. So if you took that, um, if you took the two in that day statements, one's in 17.4 and one's in 17.7, then you get the idea. I mean you can grasp the idea from that, right? Now in that day the glory of Jacob will fade, in that day man will have regard for his maker and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. Okay, so that, that's pretty clear stuff, but then you've got all that other stuff in there, right? All the other uh, visual pictures there, the extra imagery, and those would, for a Hebrew reader, those would bring visual images to the mind, things that they would grasp, but for a lot of us, those are sort of far from our experience, so that just makes it a little bit more difficult. So you got to think about them more carefully, and if you really can't get it, then you've got to go to a commentary and try to figure out what the, the top dogs say on the Hebrew studies scholars, you know. So usually you can get it by thinking about it, though, if you just think about it harder and try to picture what they're talking about there. But there's all kinds of imagery in the prophets, all kinds, painting pictures with words, that's what they do. But what's being painted might not be familiar, so we have to do a little bit of work. And so I'm just kind of hoping we can do that together as we go through the book of Amos together. So you might want to read along ahead uh, in the weeks ahead. Another reason I picked Amos is because I think it's kind of relevant for today. God sends Amos to a wealthy, prosperous, powerful nation that ignores God, that loves idols, fakes piety and worships money and land over justice. That, that sound kind of familiar? Yeah, I mean, it's a little, little familiar. It's not a real long book, but it, it actually covers the same ground that longer books do cover. Like, um, he, is, he is ministering to the same nation that Isaiah ministered to. And Isaiah was a little bit later than him, about 30 years later, but Isaiah is 66 chapters long, and uh, we've taught through that a long time ago. But maybe I'll do that one again sometime. But um, Amos, Amos is pro prophesying to the same people, but it's shorter. <laughs> so Isaiah was actually harder for him because after Amos, nobody repented. They didn't repent, and uh, he warned them that that was probably going to happen. So the book offers a, um, a real clear historical setting in the very first verse. So let's look at that. Let's get started at the first verse there. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep herders from Tekoa, which he envisioned in visions concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. So I guess there was a really big earthquake and that's how people dated things back then. So Amos is from Tekoa. It's in the southern kingdom of uh, Judah. Tekoa is a bit south of Jerusalem. And here's another thing about Amos. You can see it right there. He's a regular guy. He's a regular guy. He's not some highfalutin person. You know there were prophetic communities in the Old Testament. There was a, a family lineage sometimes as prophets. There were groups of prophets in Samuel and Kings. First Samuel 19 mentions a, a, a company of prophets and 2 Kings 2 mentions a group called the Sons of the Prophets 
and we don't there were about 50 of them in that group and we don't know if they just meant they were literally their sons or if they were just helpers of the prophets or if they were all prophets as well we don't know that but it's not totally clear but if they they could have been all people having the prophetic gift themselves so in fact uh, in chapter 7 of Amos he tells a priest at one of these uh, pagan temples he says I am not a prophet nor am I the son of a prophet. See that had very specific meaning. He says I'm not part of one of these groups and I'm not one of these sons of the prophets kind of guys. I am a herdsman and a grower of sycamore figs. <laughs> so that's his job in life. Regular guy right? So God just picks this regular guy out of the southern kingdom of Judah and says you're going north to Israel and you're going to proclaim my word to them there. So God calls him to warn this rich and prosperous nation. Now verse 1 also tells us when he did that Uzzah was the king of Judah and Jeroboam it's actually Jeroboam the second as we would call him was the king in Israel. So this takes place long after the kingdom split. So under David you had the solid kingdom and Solomon you had a a unified kingdom. Under Solomon Israel got its largest borders most successful most prosperous. Right after Solomon because of his sin the kingdom was split. So the northern part was basically ten tribes called Israel and the southern part was basically Judah and Benjamin. Benjamin's tiny. And that was called Judah. So you had Israel and Judah and they warred with each other for years. Many years. It was that split kingdom all the way until the captivities. There were two captivities because one got taken first and one got taken later. Israel became these two nations. What did Jeroboam was the first major king of the northern kingdom and he did something to stop people from going to the southern kingdom, what's in the southern kingdom? Jerusalem. Jerusalem, exactly. Didn't want them worshiping there. Because you know, his people are going to start thinking, well you know the real, the real worship is in Jerusalem, so that must be the real kingdom. He didn't want them thinking those kind of thoughts. So he built two altars for worship. One way up in the north at Dan and one right on the border, right before you crossed over into the border of Judah at Bethel and he built two golden calves. Yeah the same golden calf mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't that they were representing other gods. They would say just like, they, just like Aaron said in the Moses incident, he said this is your God that brought you out of Egypt. This is, this is Yahweh. This is, the, this is the true God. So he built idols representing the true God so they wouldn't go worship in Jerusalem. So if you know the history of the Old Testament there are no good kings, no good kings in the northern kingdom and there's about five over several hundred years in the southern kingdom. There weren't very many there either but in the northern kingdom there were none because they were all idolaters and didn't want people to worship in God's place. Okay so all that's going on. So this is quite a bit after the first Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam number two we're talking about here. So at at this particular time Judah had been pretty thrashed by Jeroboam's predecessor. They were always at war and they kind of won and broke down some of the walls in Jerusalem and made the southern kingdom kind of a prey for other nations. So he conquered there. He, He conquered across the Jordan and took all that land and he became a regional power. So Jeroboam II was a top dog guy in the region at that particular time. So with peace through strength he had a booming economy so it was a rich prosperous time for them. He reigned for 41 years so they had a very successful prosperous glorious kingdom for 41 years and the kingdom was doomed. God raised up Amos 
to tell them that. <laughs> Remember God called Israel the whole country. God called them. He planted Israel in the promised land. He delivered Israel, planted them. He did all this for them. They were to mediate God's truth to the world. That was their job. That's why they existed to be God's representatives on this word and, and world and they were to be holy people. So they forsook their purpose which they did over and over again and God sent prophets to remind them and to warn them the curses promised in the law of Moses if they ever deviated from their purpose they were going to come into effect that's what the prophets had to say. You know prophets have been called um, the guardians of theocracy. So Israel's a theocracy a, a country ruled by God that's what it was supposed to be and that's how God set it up and that's what God wanted to do. Ruled by God they blatantly violated the covenant. All that the Lord has spoken we will do they said and they aren't going to do it. Blatantly violated. So God sends prophets to remind them of what he wants, to point out their sins and to specify exactly what happens if they fail to repent. Right? So Amos prophesied somewhere around 760, 750 BC. That's when these two kings reigned in that zone. So and he's prophesying to the northern kingdom even though he's from the southern kingdom. And Isaiah would follow him. And it isn't that long after that because Isaiah prophesied against the northern kingdom and in 722 BC the empire of Assyria came down and took away all the tribes from the northern kingdom into captivity. And then over a hundred years later when the southern kingdom Babylon took them away into captivity. So all of them were going to and they're telling them this is going to happen. It's not that far off. So in his, his day God called Amos to leave his figs and his flocks. He had the fig and flock company. <laughs> <laughs> and go up there and spend his time telling them these great truths we're going to look at here. So God calls a regular man with an unpopular message to go to an immoral nation at the height of its power where the elite movers and shakers live in grand luxury and the simple people have abandoned the, the true God for idols. What an assignment that would be. I'm sure glad we don't have an assignment like that. <laughs> Maybe that's the same assignment. Anyway that's another reason we want to study this book. So Amos is going to use kind of a, a clever approach. He's sent to the northern kingdom but what he's going to do in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 is he's going to prophesy against all of the northern kingdom's neighbors. So we're going to put a map up for you and you can kind of see where they are as we go through this. He doesn't start with Israel, he ends with Israel. So he prophesies against the neighbors and by doing that first he can sneak up on, on them. So he's going to prophesy against seven neighbors and they're all on the map here. They kind of make a ring around Israel. They're north the east, the west, the south and the capital of, of, um, of Israel is Samaria. So he, he isn't so sneaky because he's going to start with a really great truth and this is in verse 2. Okay verse 2. The prophecy begins with a roar and this is where the couplets come in, these little Hebrew couplets. He said the Lord roars from Zion and from Jerusalem he utters his voice. And the shepherd's pasture grounds mourn and the summit of Carmel dries up. So you see you got two sets of little couplets there. And of course God uses um, his covenant name here when he's speaking through Amos here, Yahweh. 
And so whenever you see Lord, all capital letters in your Bible, if, if yours doesn't have Yahweh, it'll, that's what that means, Yahweh. Most Bibles. Now have you ever heard, who's, who's heard a lion roar in person? Anybody? It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Even in a zoo when they're kind of wimped out and kind of laying around, even there it's kind of a bad roar, you know, but when they really roar, if you're like really in the presence of a lion, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming, that you're like, how can that come out of that animal? You know, it's incredible. So the Lord is roaring here. And there's a line here. Um, so look at the first couplet. I actually wrote, drew a little picture for, for you in your bulletin on the left page at the bottom there. Um, this is called a chiastic structure to the first couplet here that we're going to look at in verse 2. And what's a chiasm? Well, in Greek, key is this letter, X. Key, so they so scholars call it a chiastic structure because it makes an X. So it goes like this: it goes, the Lord roars from Zion. That's the that so you can take the Lord or you can take Zion. And then it says, from Jerusalem. Oh, so we're drawing a line this way from Zion to Jerusalem. And then you could say it says, from Jerusalem, he utters his voice. So the Lord, you can connect to the second line. So you see how it makes this an X? that way. It helps you remember, he wants you to remember something important, that the, that the Lord is roaring from a certain place. Where is he roaring from? The southern kingdom, which in Jerusalem, which is God's holy place. That's the place where Jesus is going to die and rise and come back to. That's, the, that's where the, the new heavens and the new earth isn't the new uh, Samaria, it's the new Jerusalem. I mean, all of this stuff is built around Jerusalem. That's God's holy city his chosen city. And so he's letting them know that the Lord is roaring from there. Okay, so he's roaring from Jerusalem. That makes sense? All that, you kind of see that structure there? Okay, so remember now the kings of Israel did not want their people to go down to that very place to worship. They were denying them that. And that's why they set up the golden calf alternatives in the northern kingdom. So it's a false religion. Okay, the second couplet of verse 2 describes sadness and loss. The fertile pasture lands mourn. The beautiful crown of Mount Carmel is withered. So the language is meant to be sort of inclusive of all the northern land there. Um, trouble is ahead. Yes, everything's luxurious now and successful and productive, but it isn't going to be that way forever. Verse 3 then starts the prophecies to Israel's neighbors. So he doesn't really identify Israel yet, he's just, but Mount Carmel is up that way. But he doesn't, he's not identifying it directly. But verse 3 starts the neighbors going on. So he's going to go from country to country. And you can kind of picture it. Uh, all the big time players in Samaria, you could say, as he's giving these prophecies, you could see them sitting on their lofty heights and saying, oh yes, oh yes, yes. Uh, Damascus, Gaza, Tyre, Edom, Ammon, Moab, all the neighbors, they kind of make a ring around there. Those nations, yes they do, they deserve it. Yep, the Lord can blast them all he wants to. Pro prophesy away Amos, that's good, go, go for it. They might enjoy the prophet's words used against their neighbors like that. They might think that's pretty fun. Then, beginning in chapter 2, Amos is going to speak against Judah, the southern kingdom, his own kingdom, but he's saving the, and so they might, they'd be happy about that too, but then the best for last, he, he'll, he'll go after um, D uh, Samaria in the northern kingdom. And then the whole book is about Samaria and the northern kingdom. So he's starting with this thing. So if you picture it kind of as a circle of neighbors, he's making a target in the center and the target's going to be Samaria and that's where the rest of the book is aimed at. Okay, does that make sense? All right, so um, 
Where are we? We're in, uh, we're coming up to verse 3 here. Now verse 3 starts with this pattern. There's a pattern for each of these countries he's going to prophesy against, okay? Verse 3, you can see it right there, the very first part. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. Now that's a very Hebraic way of writing as well. For three transgressions and for four. So Damascus is the capital of um, Syria, that's, that's the northern neighbor. So Samaria is here, you go north and that's Syria. Assyria is beyond them. But so we're starting at the top, he's starting at uh, Damascus, he's going to judge them. But this little saying for three transgressions and for four, what does that mean? Well it means you've got a lot of sins and even more than that. That's what it basically means. So for three transgressions or for four, so it's a w- Hebraic way of saying it just goes on. You know, there's su- such a huge list of sins. That's the idea. It's not like there's four sins. No, it's, it's a way of saying, look, I can nail three sins and then there's four and it just kind of goes on. That's the only way that, it's a poetic way of saying that. Very common to do that. So there's sins, they are many, but God doesn't list all of their sins. In fact, for each city, each nation, God just picks one sin. So he says it's for three or four, in other words it's a bunch of sins, but he only outlines one sin for each of those cities. Then he's going to have the whole book nailing Israel, the northern kingdom. Okay? That's how, he, that's how it's laying out here. So it's, it's very interesting what he chooses to f- highlight as their sins. Because there's all kinds of sins. These people are idolaters, they're immoral, all kinds of things going on with all these countries. But he doesn't list all of their sins. He just chooses one example from each kingdom. And the examples are just interesting. And uh, Alan Harmon who wrote a commentary on Amos, he, he uses this expression, they are crimes of atrocity. That's his uh, wording for that. And so it's kind of interesting to think about what God is judging them for. Modern people think that ancient peoples were barbaric and monstrous and didn't know any better. That's what we think. But that's not really the case. People that were ancient believed in justice, they believed in honesty, they believed in gentleness, they believed in mercy, they believed, you know, Shakespeare called it the milk of human kindness. They all believed in that. They all believed in that. All the ancient, all the, all the philosophers from those countries taught those same basic morals. Most morality around the world is the same. It's pretty much the same. And they believed those things too. Did they live them? No, they did not live them. Just like we don't live our morality very well either. So they didn't live them and that's the whole point. But um, these crimes of atrocity are the dominant theme here. So that shouldn't really surprise us. I mean, think about the 20th century. There was no more educated, no nation with probably a greater history of philosophical thought and university education and a highly educated population than Germany in the 1930s. And look what they did. It it doesn't mean anything to know great truths if you don't live them or if you give yourself over to something else. Doesn't mean anything. Human nature is corrupted by sin. It's easy to lose one's way even if you know right from wrong and you've been taught it all your life. Think of the Bible Belt South during um, after Reconstruction in America and the Ku Klux Klan and all of that kind of stuff. I don't know if, you know I grew up in a Klan state and I had no idea because Indiana used to be one of the top Klan states in America but I had no idea because it was gone when I was there. I grew up there but I found that out much later. But in the South you know the Bible Belt 
where everybody pretty much knew the Bible and read the Bible and went to church and all that kind of stuff, they were comfortable lynching people by the thousands without trial because they hated, it was racial hatred, they hated people because of their race and they hated losing the Civil War. So they hated black people and they were very comfortable doing that. Crowds gathered to watch lynchings. It wasn't a couple guys in the night doing those things. Crowds would gather and celebrate and dance around and get in people's faces. That's human nature. Everything the Bible says they knew by heart and they tossed it aside. So that's what these, uh, that's what these ancient countries are doing too, these crimes of atrocity. They believed in good things. They loved their mom and their sister and all of that. They believed in an honest society and they were monsters at certain times. So they understood that cruelty was wrong. They, they knew that people should, you know, God made man upright. We have the image of God impressed on our hearts. We know that we should treat each other as we want to be treated. We know that in, in kind of instinctively. That's all there. And yet injustice and cruelty are prominent, even though those things are seen as evils, just like in our time. So it's not that different. Everyone knows in their heart that they should do the right thing. So the Lord judges these nations for what they know they should be and they're not being. Cruel, they're cruel. So the first several um, are guilty of, I guess you could call it dehumanization or the treatment of people as property or objects. So verse 3, going back to Damascus, the sin of Damascus. For three transgressions and for four, because they threshed Gilead with implements of sharp iron. They threshed Gilead. Gilead is where the Golan Heights is today. It was part of um, the tribal lands of Israel when they conquered the Holy Land and it was given to them and the northern kingdom went over there and crushed them. Now what does it mean thresh them with instruments of iron, implements of iron? Threshing sledges are these big things that uh, would have iron built into them and you would run it over grain and it would, it's like George Washington had horses clop around on the on, on the grain. He built a whole special thing and they would break the husk and then the little grain pieces would fall down. When the ancient world they used big sledges and drove it across the grain and break the husks from the grain and they could sort it all out from that winnowing it later you know and doing all that kind of stuff. They were doing that to people. Now it could literally be that they were threshing human beings with those sledges or it could be just it was the equivalent of that because they used these iron instruments to chop people up or break them up or things like that. So that's what he's attacking there. A horrible, horrible bar barbarism and cruelty. Um, moder more modern times you can think of the, the, the Japanese in Nanking or the, or the Nazis in Belarus or Poland and just the way they would just slaughter people, just slaughter, do the most heinous twisted things to them, not just killing them, but just horrible things to them, unbelievable things. That's the kind of thing they were doing. So verse 4 is the judgment for Damascus. So I will send fire upon the house of Hezael. It will consume the citadels of Ben-Hadad. These are all important places there. I will also break the gate bar of Damascus, their capital, the gate. It's going to break it. And cut off the inhabitant from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth-Eden so the people of Aram will go exiled to Kerr. So Aram's another name for Syria. So they're going to go there. Um, they're going to go to, to Kir. Kir is the Assyrians north of Syria. So the prophecies against Syria, they're going to come down and take them away. They're going to take them into captivity. That's the prophecy. 
Then he goes to Gaza. Now Gaza is on the coast, the southern part of the coast next to Israel on um, verse 6 there. Thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Gaza and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they deported an entire population to deliver it up to Edom. So they trafficked in humans and enslaved Jews to uh, deport to over to Edom which is another one of these countries we're going to look at today. Um, humans for sale. Their punishment verse 7 I will send fire upon the walls of Gaza it will consume their citadels. I will cut off the inhabitant of Ashdod, him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will even unleash my power upon Ekron. So you tell these names, what are those? Well there were five great cities of the Philistines and four of them are named here. He's going to completely destroy them. One of them might be already be gone by this point. But Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron, and um, those are the, the main cities there. And Gaza of course. And the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord God. So all of their great cities will fall to empires and they'll cease to exist as nations. Next is Tyre, that's a little further up the coast there, the great powerful Phoenician city on the coast of what today would be Lebanon. It was guilty of the same atrocity as Gaza, they handed over whole populations of God's people to Edom. Thus says the Lord, verse 9, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they delivered up an entire population to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. That's another element there for them. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it will consume her citadels. So here the Lord mentions the failure to remember the covenant of brotherhood. There was a really wonderful relationship between Tyre, Lebanon, and Israel when David was king. And that continued when Solomon was king. So David, David and the king of Tyre were pretty good friends. And um, they made a treaty, a formal treaty with David's son Solomon to be brothers, to be at peace with one another. In fact the king of Tyre supplied building materials for the palace of the king of Israel, Judah in those days, you know, early days. And also to build the temple, the first temple. He supplied the cedars of Lebanon and some of the stuff they needed for that. He wanted to help. You can read all about it in 1 Kings chapter 5. <laughs> in fact 1 Kings 5.12 mentions this covenant between Solomon and Tyre. So they actually had this deal, this relationship you know. It's kind of like America and England or something or NATO or one of those kind of things. They, they were going to be on the same side about things and so there's this unprovoked attack on, on them. They attack God's people in Judah, a day that will live in infamy. So in response the Lord says he will consume its citadels. Everybody's selling people to Edom. They must be the collectors of people, you know. And perhaps unsurprisingly Edom is next on the list. So Edom is the first of the countries condemned here that are also descendants of Abraham. So the Edomites are the descendants of Esau, okay, Jacob's brother. So the little book of the prophet Obadiah is entirely directed at Edom, that prophecy, the Obadiah book. And in fact Obadiah says in verse 10, because of the violence to your brother Jacob you will be covered with shame and you will be cut off forever. There is no Edomite people anymore. They're, they've gone out of existence because of God's judgment on them. They were ferocious enemies of the Jews. Ferocious, bitter, bitter hostility. And that's as far um, as the Lord is going to 
let them go. Thus says the Lord, verse 11, for three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword while he stifled his compassion. If they had a sense of mercy in their hearts, they stifled it. They held it down. His anger also tore continually and he maintained his fury forever. So I will send fire upon Teman and it will consume the citadels of Bozrah. Those are their main, main cities. So it's a hatred of God that uh, God's chosen people that's driving them to do this. They hate them. It's a continual anger where there should be brotherhood. They should be friends. The next two are Ammon and Moab. Now you remember where those nations came from? After the destruction of Sodom, Lot escaped with his daughters and his daughters panicked because they thought their life was over so they, they got their father drunk and seduced him in a drunken state so they could have children and have a future and one of, the, one of those kids was Moab and one of the other kid was Ammon so that's where they come from. So they were born of an incestuous union there. So for Ammon the one sin, remember each kingdom is, has one sin outlined even though there's three or you know three plus sins that go on a whole list of them. God could pick anything. But for them it was this brutal genocidal campaign again against uh, Israel's people talking about the whole nation of Israel for territorial expansion. Verse 13, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the sons of Ammon and for four I will not revoke its punishment because they ripped open the pregnant women of Gilead. Again that's part of Israel's land in order to enlarge their borders. So ambition and greed drove them to these horrendous acts. Now that barbaric practice was done in ancient times. It's still done today in some places. Modern warfare too when people are really horrified or angry or hateful. But this is against Gilead. Again that's part of the land that God gave to his people. They made the mistake of living on the land that other people coveted. That's, that was their problem. So this is the same area where the Syrians had threshed people. So they've been really being treated horribly. Right? So all of these sins are rooted in the human heart. That's where they come from. So God is talking about that ambition and greed. They make us walk over people as well sometimes. And God judges those things. He hates those things. Okay verse 14. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah and I will consume her citadels amid war cries on the day of battle and a storm on the day of tempest. Their king will go into exile. He and his princes together says the Lord. Then to Moab. Now this, this one's really interesting. I know we're almost out of time here but the Moab sin is different than all the other sins. And it just makes me want to go, why? Why is that? You know, kind of want to study that more. Maybe it speaks to our time. I'm not sure. But here it goes. Verse 2. This, we're in chapter 2 now. Um, Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because he burned the bones of the king of Edom to lime. That's the one he picked. So this isn't selling whole populations into slavery. It's not tearing babies out of their mother's wombs. It, it isn't even against Israel. It's about the king of Edom. What they did to the king of Edom. They pulled his body out of his tomb. Some kind of memorial for him. And they burned it. A dead body. And turned it into lime it says. Now that just stops me in my tracks. I'm going why does God single out that sin above all the other sins he could point to that Moab, um, Moab did. Why would he do that? Well 
is it an atrocity on the order of those other things? I mean, not in my mind, not in my modern American mind, it doesn't seem like an atrocity. It's a mean thing to do, kind of unkind. And we aren't told why, why it's an atrocity or why it's so bad. But if you think about it, I think, I think we're supposed to think about the heart behind it, behind the action there. Dr. Feinberg, who wrote a great commentary on the Minor Prophets, he said, the spirit of revenge will not stop even at the dead. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Their hatred was so intense and God hates hatred like that. <laughs> God is opposed to hatred. It's like when they dug up Wycliffe's body, the Roman Catholic Church, long after he was dead and burned it, you know, and scattered the ashes long after he was dead because he translated the Bible into English and disagreed with some of their doctrines. Spite, hatred, I mean, God is offended by those things amongst, amongst human beings. Not being satisfied with victory, these Moabites ground their heels into the vanquished. They had to torment them. Now there's another thought. So James Montgomery Boyce, who's a great preacher, he, he's got a commentary on the Minor Prophets too. This is what he says. They quote, heaped insult and sacrilege on defeat by desecrating the remains of one of the national heroes of Edom. And then he says, we are to honor the past. So and he says that ripping the children out of the wombs of um, the other nation was, is attacking the future and this is sort of attacking the past. That made me think about the times we live in, in terms of that. You know, so much hate. How much hate is there in our country directed at the honored dead of our own people, right? Boyce was talking about that regarding this verse long before this stuff started happening in our culture. This, he wrote that a long time ago. Great men having their statues pulled down, their, their names taken off school buildings so some local big shot can put his name there instead. Their stories taken out of the history books. I mean, it's really interesting. They just, New York, the New York Museum, where Robin Williams is, lives at night as uh, Theodore Roosevelt. They, they, they just pulled his stat, they just took Teddy Roosevelt's statue. It's been there for 80 years, right at the front door where you go in. They just took down his statue. Probably one of the greatest men that's ever lived in America. And he's the guy that, it, there wouldn't be conservation and preservation of the wilderness and all that stuff without him. He was a, a great man. He was a war hero. He was a, a good, he wasn't perfect. Nobody's perfect, but he was a great man. One of our great men, you know. They, why do they gotta take his statue down? What kind of hatred is it that makes a culture want to take down superior people? Well, it's hatred. It's hatred that does that. And that's exactly why they dug up the king of Edom out of his tomb or pulled him out of his tomb and burned his bones. It was such an intense hatred for that. It's, it, it's a hatred of our uniqueness as a people that makes people do that, or our history, our identity. It's really interesting. It's, I just find it fascinating that that's in here on this list of horrible sins that suddenly it's that one. So I think we're actually following the path of Moab in our own country with this. So God's going to judge Moab for many sins, but this is the one that stood out. What's the punishment? I will send fire upon Moab. It will consume the citadels of Kiriath. Moab will die amid tumult with war cries and the sound of the trumpet. I will also cut off the judge from her midst and slay all of her princes with him, says the Lord. So serious consequences for all of these, all of these kingdoms, all of these uh, groups, even this sin of desecration of the dead, he's going to destroy their country for that. Well, we have to stop at this point, obviously, and pick it up next time when God turns his attention to Judah, 
and then Israel. So the same pattern's going to go, but then Israel is the whole rest of the book. Okay? So um, remember always that God is holy, that He is against sin, He's against all sin. There are consequences for sin. It offends His nature, which is holy and good, and all of that. So um, reading these judgments this morning, Maybe it'll make us pause a bit as we partake of the Lord's table regarding our own sinfulness and reflecting on our own sins, our own unwillingness to forgive. God doesn't want any kind of malice in his people. He doesn't want anything like that. No grudges, no spite, no withholding of affection. So we know as believers in Christ he paid for these sins with his own life. So we're going to do that now and, and celebrate that time. Let me pray and then we'll... we'll take the Lord's table together. Our great God you are holy, you are awesome in your judgments, you judge righteously always, and you are great in your mercy which we've received through Jesus Christ our Savior, which we do not deserve, but which you freely offer in him. So direct our hearts now to his sacrifice and our unworthiness of it. In his name we pray. Amen.